We have high confidence that Kim is highly unlikely to give up his nuclear weapons. It is the week of September 28th, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of NSI. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Dr. Jung Pak, senior fellow and the SK Korea Foundation Chair in Korea Studies at Brookings Institution's Center for East Asia Policy Studies, and the recent author of Becoming Kim Jong-un, a former CIA officer's insights into North Korea's enigmatic young dictator. Dr. Pak has held senior positions at the CIA and the Office of Director of National Intelligence, including as Deputy National Intelligence Officer at the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2016. In that role, Dr. Pak led the intelligence community's production of strategic analysis on Korea Peninsula issues, represented the IC and White House policy meetings, provided direct analytic support to the National Security Council, and advised the DNI and his senior staff on key developments and emerging issues. Dr. Pak, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jamil. It's great to be with you today. We're going to be talking about uh, Kim Jong-un, North Korea policy, uh, and your awesome uh, book, Becoming Kim Jong-un, a former CIA officer's insights into North Korea's enigmatic young dictator. So, you know, one of the things that makes it hard to talk North Korea policy uh, is like you say, it's one of, it's the hardest of hard targets. Now that you're out of the IC, how do you think about gathering and sharing information on the regime? Um, I have to tell you that when I first started at Brookings um, Institution back in 2017, that the fall of that year, um, I had spent almost nine years at the CIA and I sat down in my office at Brookings and I stared at my single computer monitor. And right. I thought to myself, oh, my God, I mean, how does one get any information? <laughs> um, you know, it was for and for a split moment there, I, I felt blind and deaf. And it was a, it was a very strange feeling. So it, it was a, a little bit of a, a very different way of trying to gather information. Yeah. Um, you know, Matt Olson describes it as being unplugged for the Matrix. <laughs> That sounds that sounds about right. Um, and I remember feeling a little bit, you know, slightly discombobulated. You know, where's my footing? You know, what am I supposed to do at a at a think tank? Um, but but in any case, I think that uh, North Korea is a hard target in many ways. You know, intel is is an art, not a science. And that you know, even if you get lots of information, it doesn't necessarily make your job easier. But with North Korea, where you have not that much information. Um, and right. the regime has very strong counterintelligence practices. Its people don't leave the country. Uh, and it's just difficult to, to get at this target. You have to rely on different muscles and different yeah. cells to try to get at North Korea's intentions. And I think this is where you can't just rely on intelligence uh, analysis, but also things like history, things like language, things like culture, and something that was really good for somebody like me who was, you know, I have a very liberal arts background. You know, I was a U.S. history major. I taught U.S. history in New York City. Right. Um, and so, but, you know, I, you know, working at the CIA and working on this account was, you know, probably one of the best uh, experiences, a huge privilege to be working uh, on behalf of this mission. Yeah. So it's really interesting. You know, they talk about uh, SIGINT. They talk about sort of reflections from the SIGINT. But in North Korea's case, even the human is sort of reflections because you're dealing with trying to understand what they're saying and how they're saying it. You're trying to read what they're saying publicly and try to translate that into, into you know, analysis. And so was it hard giving briefings on North Korea given the sort of secrecy and control of information that the regime enforces? 
You know, one of the hardest things about intelligence analysis and supporting policymakers um, is that the most difficult thing is trying to get at a leader's head because you know, that's just one of the, the most closely held types of information. So, um, and in North Korea's case, it makes it that much more difficult. And so, I, you know, I talk a lot about in the book about tradecraft, about, uh, you know, how to do analysis uh, and how, you know, as part of our practice, you know, we're constantly going into training, analytic training, going to structured analysis, consulting with methodologists, um, consulting with senior analysts. So there are all sorts of ways that we can try to get at this problem. And, you know, and, and I also talk about how we have confidence levels, too, right, um, in that we can have... We have high confidence that Kim is highly unlikely to give up his nuclear weapons because we've seen this history of what North Korea has done and said. But when it comes to things like what is North Korea going to do next week, um, that confidence is lower. And I think that's one of the important things that we can provide um, to uh, policymakers and to the general public and the national security community about what is our level of confidence that something is likely to happen. Right. You know, one of the things uh, that we've seen in this administration is the president sort of has taken the view that his relationship, right, uh, which began rocky uh, and then has evolved over time, that he might be able to re rely on his relationship with Kim Jong-un uh, to, to sort of get a deal done, right, or to make progress uh, and to get past some of the, the challenges that prior administrations have, have faced. What have we learned about Kim through this relationship? And has it actually helped or harmed the goal of denuclearization in your view? I think neither to your last question, um, but I think, or maybe a little bit of both, the answer is somewhere in the middle. Um, I would say that um, the, the fact that the, the summits happened between uh, President Trump and Kim Jong-un um, is that we got a chance to see him without yeah. the filters of North Korean propaganda. We saw him in real time. I don't think anything was very surprising from what I saw from the summits, um, but we were able to validate that Kim Jong-un is not in great health. We were able to validate that he's a heavy smoker, right? We we're able to validate that he is overweight and he has trouble breathing in the way that um, we saw him, you know, sweating, um, walking a short distance, you know, kind of waddling a little bit and really just um, not in the best shape. You know, I think with some of the ports and the books and the biographies and autobiographies and all of the accounts that have come out from people who, you know, were in that environment, you know, working in the Trump administration, um, I think none of that was really surprising, but we got glimpses of Kim's personality refracted through those meetings. We can see that he was nervous, you know, in that first Singapore summit. He wasn't sure where to put his arm. You know, he was a little bit awkward. And of course, there was that language issue and the fact that this right. is such a big deal. But then by Hanoi, there were all the two men were mimicking each other's body language. They were sitting in a similar way, you know, abutting this this table that was at the center. They both had their elbows on the table. Their gates were very similar in when they were walking from from meeting location to another meeting location. Um, and so that was really interesting. And I also thought it was fascinating um, how uh, the accounts in, in recent books about how Kim was able to flatter and deploy flattery to try to um, soften his adversary. Um, and this is something that I've uh, you know talked about and we've analyzed um, in the past and I think but that, this was an interesting validation and reinforcement yeah. of those judgments. Yeah Kim was working the president 
he was working and he was not bad at it. Right. Um, and I think you have to give him, you know, that was, you know, in, in many ways, the fact that he was able to have these very big summits with a very big man um, right. is that um, that it really underscored for me how or I was, I was reminded of how um, in the beginning when he first came to power or when he was named the successor as a 26 year old, um, yeah. how everybody poo pooed, you know, his ability to be the next leader. Um, but the way he handled these meetings with such, I would say, a plum, you know, he was pretty yeah. with it. Um, and judging from what I saw, you know, we can talk about what I think he did wrong in the negotiations, but I think overall, um, he handled himself very well, given the fact that it was such a big moment. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. What, so what, how, so you watched the negotiations from the outside. Um, how do you think it went down? I mean, how, how well, if you were rating the president, rating, uh, Rating Kim Jong Un, who won, why, how, what was, what, what techniques do they use? Uh, you know, I think that, um, and I and I mentioned, and I wrote this in the book about how the president and Kim Jong Un had pretty similar personalities, um, and that looking at scenarios where they don't get along versus where they got along too well, um, and yeah. it was the latter. And I think that because both men wanted the summit to be successful and they both wanted to look good, that it wasn't going to go badly. But that what we saw was that the men, the two leaders got along very well. The president has um, talked about his his good relationship with Kim. And that was in part designed um, to try to keep Kim interested in diplomacy, to try to yeah. keep Kim engaged with the president to make sure that Kim doesn't, doesn't just, you know, knock over everything on the table and just walk away which we ultimately did, but, you know, but he, but to still have that channel with the president to try to get some progress on that, on the, right. on the nuclear issues. Um, so I think that was probably worth trying. But one of the things that I warned is that, you know, the reason we have an Intel community that is objective um, and, you know, our only goal is to support the policy, but also speak truth to power is that in negotiations like this, any kind of leadership negotiations that people generally tend to fall toward vividness bias, where, because you are talking with somebody, you believe them, right? And mm. so that's why we have a national security apparatus to say, well, he's saying this thing, but he's saying something different in private, or he's making movements that are not consistent with what he's saying to your face. Um, and but that you know, but that's all part of national security. It's all part of in, in this. That's just the way things happen. Um, but I think um, I think one of the one of the really um, disappointments for me as a former Intel professional is how the president spoke so poorly of the CIA and of the intelligence analysts of, you know, some of the pressures that the Intel community faced as a result of a desire, the, the administration's desire to keep things positive with Kim, right? We're going to continue to say that it's going to be really hard to get Kim to give up his nuclear weapons. And the nuclear problem is not solved right yet, right? So, you know, that's how we have to keep um, speaking truth to power. Yeah. No, and I think it's interesting because, you know, one of the challenges and I, I've never heard of this idea of vividness bias, but but you see it happening over and over again. Right. You saw it with, with Vladimir Putin when the president went to Moscow uh, and I met with him and talked about or where, wherever it was. I forget if it was Moscow, but where he sat down and Putin said, well, we didn't we didn't we were involved in the elections. The president, well, you know, I know what the agency and the intel community says, but but Putin told me they didn't do it. Right. And you could just see everyone's 
head explode, right? It's interesting that there's actually a name for that. I, I think a lot of us thought, well, that's just Donald Trump being Donald Trump. But it's interesting to know there's actually a concept behind that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is a very human thing. It's not just President yeah. Trump. It's a very human thing to, to be uh, more believing of something that you see in front of you. I think that's just human nature. And that's what's so interesting about what I appreciated so much about the training I got at the agency is how to not trust yourself, right? And how to always think that you're wrong and try to go over in your mind how you could be right and how you could be wrong and what you would need to see uh, for you to be one or the other. And so, I mean, I think we have this amazing intelligence community, amazing professionals who are working um, in the government who are able to provide those guardrails, right? In the in how to and how to think about a problem, to how to and suggest ways that uh, we can move forward on you know problem X. So uh, you know you talked earlier about succession, and we obviously have a potential succession uh, event coming up in North Korea with um, with the questions about his health. You you mentioned those uh, already, and we've obviously heard he's been out of the public eye, in and out of public eye quite a bit here um, for weeks and months. Let's talk about how he came to power, right? And then let's talk about what that, what that tells us uh, about him and what it might mean for the future uh, North Korean leader. So, you know, he, he came to power, you know, at, at a young age, as you point out, and, you know, he murdered his uncle. Uh, tell us about, uh, about, about those moments, about his growing up and how that, how that, what that tells about him as a leader today and his sort of negotiating style and, 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 and what it means about him in terms of nuclear weapons scenario uh, in, in North Korea. Yeah, when you have a leadership succession, and, and so he, Kim Jong-un came to power in December 2011 when his when his father died from overwork, is what the regime said. But three years prior to Kim succeeding his father, the father had had a stroke. So, you know, when, when we look at a leadership transition, you want to be mindful. And I remember being very cautious about this, right? Because, you know, of course, the the policy interest is high. You know, there were White House meetings, you know, uh, taskings, um, they want to know everything now. And what do we do about this? You know, how do you how do we manage this situation? Um, And so, you know, in looking at Kim, and I think, you know, this is true of other um, leadership successions, etc. But this is very special in, in North Korea because you have three family members who took over. So how do you make sure that you're not bound by the past analysis, right? So his father was one way. How do you not let that right. analysis and how do you not get lazy and right. um, have that same analysis for the son? The grandfather ruled a certain way. How do we make sure that, you know, we're constantly revisiting, you know, how one is different from the other or how one is similar to the other. And I would say that, you know, one of the things which has become conventional wisdom now is that Kim is not your grandfather's dictator. He's very much comfortable in the folds of history, the adulation of his grandfather as a war hero a guerrilla dynasty, the fact that um, the, the grandfather is the country's founder, you know, the, yeah. the, without without him, there would be no North Korea. You know, so he's very so Kim Jong-un is very comfortable um, looking like him or making himself look like him. He's very comfortable right. walking like him. He's very comfortable dressing like his grandfather. Um, but I but, you know, I, I would emphasize that he's not his grandfather, that Kim has taken his youth. You know, he was 26, 27 when he took over. He's taken his youth as a benefit, um, as a positive um, yeah. to show vigor, dynamism. You know, we're not talking about the 1920s and the 1930s anymore. We're talking about the 21st century, you know, with yeah. with Kim. You know, Kim obviously had Kim Jong-un had 
had a lot of deficits, right? He had no military experience in a country that espouses uh, military dominance and that every have everybody has to think military first. Um, yeah. He was young in a, in a culture that generally um, reveres age and experience over youth. Um, and, and there was no way, there was no propaganda gymnastics that the regime could do to place Kim Jong-un at the site of the Korean War <laughs> or, right. you know, or with the Japanese guerrillas. You know, for, for Kim Jong-il, his father, they would, the regime propaganda had it so that Kim Jong-il, as a kindergartner, was reviewing, you know, um, air defense. Military plans. Yeah, right. exactly. But because we're of, of, you know, of Kim Jong-un's age, there was no way that you could, you know, even propaganda has its limits, right? Um, right. So Kim Jong-un had those deficits. But, you know, the way he got over them was to rebuild and beef up all of the war museums, renovated them, made them bigger, made them more gruesome, and continually beat the drum of the U.S. as a hostile outside power that's going to kill North Koreans. And the fact that the the regime fashioned Kim Jong-un to look like his grandfather. I mean, he made a great effort to constantly relive the Korean War and to place him in that narrative. Yeah. But, you know, but Kim Jong-un wasn't satisfied just living in the in the war. He wanted to move forward and he and this is where he deploys his youth. We can see it in this way where he has been uh, refurbishing um, the and undertaken a building boom in Pyongyang and in other parts of the country. Condominiums, high rises, high end restaurants, coffee shops galore luxury department stores where you can buy lot you know all of these fancy watches and you know fancy luxury appliances you can see water parks amusement parks riding stables um you know all of those things were in pyongyang where you know i think it's no secret that north korea is one of the most poor and repressive right. societies and to have that juxtaposition of this wealth right? The accoutrements of modern society in the 21st century. I think Kim was absolutely trying to combat that narrative of North Korea as this poor, backwards country that was living in the past. So, uh, so, you know, knowing all this and knowing that, you know, he grew up with more of a connection to the West than his predecessors, you know, his schooling, his, uh, his friendship with, uh, with Dennis Rodman and his, you know, his interest in basketball, right? What does that tell us about him and, and, and sort of who he who he is as a leader today? Yeah, you know, Kim Kim Jong-un, as far as we can tell, spent about four years um, studying in Switzerland. Um, and, you know, the, the accounts vary, but generally he was just an okay student. I'm sure the language issue was a problem. And Kim found himself to be a small fish in a big pond. Um, and he was in the West when, uh, you know, in the 90s, late 90s, when you know, this was that that was a unipolar moment where everyone everyone was absolutely positive that this was the end of the wars of any wars and conflict, that we were going to have this bright, shining future and a sense of optimism, I think, pervaded the West in the late 90s. Of course, in North, back in North Korea, though, this is when North Korea was going through its the, its worst man-made disaster. 
Um, and that was the famine of the late 90s. Um, so while Kim was skiing in the Alps and swimming in the Riviera and going to Euro Disney, you know, his North Koreans back at home were starving, um, just dying and collapsing in the street where people were eating toads and frogs and rats and snakes just to get by and eating tree bark to, to try to survive. But meanwhile, you know, Kim was, you know, playing Nintendo video games. He was doing all of these very luxurious things as he yeah. should as the dictator's son. So how does that affect him? So I think in a way, you know, we can't lift Kim Jong-un from history or the, yeah. the present moment. He's a millennial, right? He's a millennial who is, you know, who has grown up in this optimism of, yeah. you know, whether, you know, we had a different kind of optimism in the West and, and you know, in places like, you know, South Korea and, you know, Japan and elsewhere we were, there was optimism, but he had the optimism of somebody in North Korea who had zero knowledge of famine, right? Zero knowledge of war and devastation. He came of age as a North Korean, the third generation of a dictatorship, um, where all the history books and all the monuments say that you have revolutionary royal blood, you know, coursing through your veins. And he's only known uh, North Korea's whose economy was growing. And he has only known a North Korea that has had nuclear weapons. So that's a that's a pretty big basket of you know good things that you have going for you as you as you look to um, move forward in the 21st century. So you know there's been a lot of talk. You mentioned it about his health um, and and the potential for succession. Uh, we've heard a lot about his sister. She sat in for him at the Olympic Games. She's been featured in the media. This does look like the beginnings of what might be a transition, but it will be the first female leader of North Korea if it happens. This is a society where that's that may be a challenge for people to accept. But she comes from the right family, and she apparently has an iron will. What do we know about his sister? What do we know about what do we know about his health right now? And uh, how do we think this is going to play out? You know, I don't I don't think that we would um, know very much about succession because it was such a sensitive, close hold thing. But when I look back at um, what Kim Jong-un has gone through, you know, he had a very compressed grooming period. His father started, you know, uh, elevating his son uh, right after the stroke, um, understanding that his time might be, you know, coming due. Um, right. And so Kim Jong-un himself knows the the challenges of having a very compressed succession period. And as a 26-year-old, when he came to power, he had lost both parents, right? He lost his mother when he was 20. He lost yeah. his father when he was 26. And those are big, you know, profound changes in a young man's life. So he almost certainly understands and has dealt with death in that way, right? So... I would be surprised if he wasn't thinking about succession, but I would be surprised if anybody knows what that succession um, uh, you know, would look like um, yeah. and how he's planning for that. And it would be dangerous for him to say anything about it or to um, let out any kind of any part of his thinking about it. Um, but yeah. we can look at the observables of what he's doing. Right. Yeah. The observable is that he is letting his sister issue statements in her name. He is letting her um, make military orders so that the military blows up the inter-Korean um, cooperation office. He is letting his sister go to the Olympics to represent him. Um, and so it's clear that he trusts his sister. I mean, she's been his de facto chief of staff for a long time um, and that um, and that he is uh, trying to burnish her military and leadership bona fides. 
does that mean that he's grooming her to be the successor? I probably not. Interesting. I, and I'll, yeah, probably not. But I'll explain why. Um, but I, but you know, I, when we look at something, this, you know, the question that you asked Jamil about is he, you know, is he doing? Are we in the succession process? You know, in the speculation, I think it's le- is less helpful. Uh, you know, I, I think I want to. We start with you know what do we see happening, yeah. and what does right. that mean, right? Right. Um, right. And so. The fact that he, that Kim Jong Un is not in good health, I mean, you know, we talked about this earlier. That's we can see that, yeah. um, and you know, regardless of whether he's going to die next week or fifty years from now, um, we always have to be prepared for that tomorrow, right? So I don't think uh, he wants his sister to be the next leader. I think she can do it, you know. And and this is, of course, you know, informed speculation, um, yeah. you know, based on what I've seen and what I've, you know, what I assess um, Kim's intentions are. Yeah. Um, and the reason, and this is the favorite, my favorite chapter in the book, um, Jamil, um, is the, is a chapter on women, on Kim Jong-un's wife. You know, I think it's reasonable to have his sister be some sort of regent or some sort of guiding light or guiding mentor for one of Kim's children. He has three. They're not old enough to take over, but I would not be surprised if he's trying to build up his sister's credentials so that if something were to happen or at some point later that she can help the next uh, leader. But I also, you know, but I think there's also, you know, elevating the sister serves a different purpose too, is that by delegating certain things to her, it shields him. Um, She can take care of this. If something goes wrong, you know, there's always a, a, a layer between Kim's, you know, responsibility and her responsibility. So there, so there's yeah. that aspect. Um, so, so um, Kim Jong Un has done something very different from his father and his grandfather, which is he has showcased his wife. His father and grandfather like to keep their wives and personal lives under wraps. You know, all of these right. children were, you know, lived in these, you know, um, these mansions. You know, very separated from everybody else. Um, but from the beginning, um, the the wife has been there. Um, and, and she's been there, whether they're at an orphanage or they're in some cadre's home and she's doing dishes and it's it's a very homey kind of feel. And she's at the, you know, at military installations. Right. Um, so she right. And, and they're also at, you know, shoe factories, cosmetic factories. I mean, she she's there. Um, right. And one of the reasons that I think he has done that is to show the world um, and show anybody and everybody in North Korea that this is the mother of the next leader that do not start spreading rumors about consorts, which was something that plagued his father and his grandfather consorts, second wives, third wives, you know, maneuverings, you know, all of that stuff, you know, that dictators and autocrats don't like to have right people, you know, the elite hedging against the against the leader. Um, And so I think that that is one of the primary motivations for having his wife so front and center. But you know, there's there's that aspect. But I also think that, you know, she represents that 21st century modern dictatorship. She's attractive. She's not dressed in all gray like the sister is. But she's very um, colorful. She yeah. wears makeup. You know, she wears peep toe shoes. I think she's supposed to be channeling the consumerist energies of the North Korean people. Yeah, in a lot of ways, like Bashar Assad's wife, right? Sort of a very, very much out there, very prominent. You know, playing that that first lady role. In fact, she, her title has changed to respected first lady from comrade. Right, right. And so, and that's a big elevation to you know to say that this is you know this is uh, 
you should pay attention to her, right? Um, yeah. And it, but you know, it it provides that softer side, yeah. um, and puts the charm in the charm offensive. So let's talk about let's talk about the foreign policy piece. You know, the president has challenged our traditional assumptions about our alliances in around the globe, but in Asia in particular, um, he's talked about uh, potential changes to our force posture in South Korea, in Japan. It's made our allies in that region nervous about about the protection of the U.S. umbrella. What is the situation with North Korea? How are they reading uh, the president's uh, tells on South Korea and Japan? And what about China? What is China thinking about all of what's going on? And how are they playing the situation to their advantage? Let's start with North Korea first. In general, um, North Korea likes to do things, do diplomacy bilaterally. Um, because uh, you don't have five parties ganging up on you. Um, when you do bilateral diplomacy, you can try to pick one side away from the other, drive wedges, um, exploit the other country's national interests versus the, the global interest to try to make way on extracting political and economic concessions. So in the way, you know, in, in this way, um, the fact that We've had uh, so so. Let's do the let's do the scorecard, Jamil. Right? Yeah. Um, five Kim Xi meetings, three Trump Kim meetings, and three Moon um, Kim meetings. One Putin meeting, zero uh, meeting with with uh, Abe Japan. Um, and so that I think shows you what North Korea's priorities are, um, as as well as what some of the regional dynamics are that. North Korea, you know, prefers these this, this bilateral engagement. What benefits North Korea is any conflict um, between and among allies. The U.S. president um, said that we were not going to do these war games anymore, and and that's North Korea's terminology, right? We're not going to do these military exercises that are designed to deter and prevent, you know, prevent a North Korean attack, right, or in response to a North Korean attack. Um, and he did that without, you know, talking to uh, or consulting with uh, with South Korea uh, or Japan or his national security advisors. Right. And so that raised a lot of anxiety in the region. Well, here at home, too. And and here at home. Right. Um, That, you know, one of the deeply held foreign policy truths is that you make sure you have, you know, your allies with you when you're leading. Right. So I think that was that was a big bonus for Kim to have the exercises stopped or postponed or reduced um, in their in their intensity without having to give up very much in terms of, you know, the you know, what we're worried about there is their nuclear right. weapons program. Yeah. So uh, how do we think about what comes next? Right. So we've talked about what China's thinking. We've talked about Japan and South Korea. We've talked about Kim Jong-un as a person. What What's realistic for us to expect going forward uh, from this you know, U.S. North Korea relationship. They've got nuclear weapons. We don't want them to have them. That doesn't like that's getting resolved. So what's what's reality for the next five, 10 years? What can we possibly hope to achieve uh, as we look out out from the moment today? Uh, Jamil, the trajectory is not good uh, and the forecast is not good. Um, so what Kim has done in the first six years of, you know, of, of, of ruling North Korea he has done four times more ballistic missile tests than his father and grandfather combined, did four of North Korea's six nuclear tests, including something that was uh, 10, 15 times greater than what was dropped on Hiroshima. Um, his ro- his uh, ballistic missiles are now more diverse 
they're more reliable and they're more mobile. Um, and that makes it, you know, that complicates the, the security situation in the region. Um, and the fact that um, we were able to get so little progress in the past three years, despite this very um, welcome environment for Kim. We had a progressive government in South Korea that was all pro-engagement. We had a Xi Jinping who was willing to forget about the icy ties of the first six, six or seven years. And we had a U.S. president who was willing to put a lot on the table. Um, but Kim blew it all away. Um, it's, and, and that, you know, sadly reinforces our, under, our assessment that Kim is highly unlike, unlikely to give away his nuclear weapons because he can't. Um, because, and he relies on them for legitimacy. He relies on them to um, continue his rule. Um, and he relies on them to justify you know, diverting scarce resources into the nuclear weapons program. So I think it's a matter of time before we see another test or strategic provocation. And so I think the, the forecast doesn't look very good. So that's pretty dark. So if you if you ran U.S. foreign and national security policy tomorrow, you owned it all, and you could do anything, what would you do on North Korea? Um, I think uh, the administration so far, um, and I think Steve Began in particular has has done a yeoman's job of trying to um, herd the cats. You know, he's done. Uh, I think, from my perspective, has done a good job of. Um, trying to keep our allies, you know, the, the U.S. is aligned with our allies, um, South Korea and Japan. He's, you know, he's shuttling back and forth. He's on the phone with them and, and consulting with um, with their allies. So I think that's good. And I, and I think that's something that needs to be um, ramped up um, and, and uh, amplified. Um, I think that, you know, we have the muscle memory of what we need to do on North Korea. Um, you know, policies change, you know, and but and that's the prerogative of the pre, of the U.S. president. But we have the muscle memory and there's something there are things on the books. Right. Um, North Korea is a known proliferator. Right. So we need to make sure that the sanctions are implemented and these sanctions are there to keep us safe, um, not just as a as a cudgel to beat North Korea with for being bad, um, but that we're trying to prevent the transfer of sensitive technologies to and from North Korea to bad to other bad actors. So we need to strengthen sanctions enforcement and try to uh, ensure that our allies and our partners, not just, you know, not just um, South Korea and Japan, but all of the our friends um, overseas have the capacity to recognize violations that uh, North Korea's capabilities are getting bigger and diversifying. Um, and so we can do that. Uh, and finally, I would say that we need to invest more on North Korea human rights. Um, we haven't had a North Korea human rights envoy since President Trump came to power. And I argue about this and argue this in the book is that because uh, we have to think of North Korean human rights and Kim's loosening of that repression as part and parcel of how we get to denuclearization. Dr. Park, what an amazing conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, for our listeners, uh, Dr. Jung Park, uh, awesome book, Becoming Kim Jong-un, a former CIA officer's insights in North Korea's enigmatic young dictator. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Jamil. It was a pleasure. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for engineering, Zach Varda for research assistance, and Grant Haver for production assistance. 
Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.